Hey, y'all, this is episode two of a serialized show, which means if you haven't heard episode one yet, it is time to hit pause and go listen to that. And then you start this episode. Trust me, it's going to make a lot more sense. Thanks. Witness Docs from Stitcher. Lo and behold, we were in San Tomas, a small island in the Virgin Islands. We lived in a large country house. Meet Porfirio Rubirosa, y'all. Our guy, the legendary playboy himself, the Dominican James Bond who's been haunting me. What you just heard is a bit of Ruby's memoir. It was published after he died. We have an actor reading it. I'm sharing this bit with you because Ruby describes a scene that I think tells us a lot about the man he'll grow up to be. It's around 1914, and five-year-old Ruby and his family are living in exile on the island of St. Thomas. One day, Ruby's teacher gives him a violin and puts him in the orchestra. Except, there's one problem. Ruby doesn't know how to play the violin. I remember breaking down in tears in front of all the others. But the teacher said, Porfirio, just pretend. Pretend that you know how to play. That will be fine. <laughs> I thought, is this how it is in the adult world? Does everyone just pretend? Pretend. Just pretend. Ruby says those words and what they symbolized were etched in his mind forever. And honestly, we've all heard something like this before, right? You know, fake it till you make it. But for me, and for many people of color, this childhood lesson to pretend so that you fit in, it resonates on a much deeper level. Fake it till you make it. Pretend you're something else so you can get ahead. Okay. But at what cost? And who for? I'm Christopher Rivas, and this is Ruby Rosa, Episode 2, Pretenders. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. All right, let's get out of the studio for a minute and jump down into the subway. It's 3 a.m. I'm on a subway platform, and there are some very weird people on a subway at 3 a.m. Uh, in fact, people are looking at me like I'm the weird one. I recorded this in New York City when I was visiting in fall of 2021. My producers handed me a field recorder, and they said, Chris... Go wild. I had no idea what I would say. And then I was waiting for a late night train. 
And I started thinking about a story that's like a legend in my family. My parents have told it to me a million times. It was 1984, and my mom and my pops, they'd been hanging with some friends. It was 3 a.m., and they were waiting for the 7 train. And they were standing somewhere on this very platform, and my 20-year-old mom told my 23-year-old pops that she was pregnant with Lauren, my older sister, their first kid. My mom, she's an immigrant, an outsider, and my pops is first generation. And my mom is standing there. She's waiting for some sort of reaction when my pop asks her, okay, what do you want, Nana? And my mom, she thinks for a second. She knows exactly what she wants. She says, I want my kids to never have to worry about where their next meal comes from. I want them to have something more than we had. I want them to have something more than this single mattress on the floor of our studio apartment, something more than spaghetti and hot dogs for dinner. And my pop says, okay, let's do it. Let's do it. How? My mom asks. I don't know, my pop says. Well, we're going to do it. We'll do it no matter what. And this was the moment when these two young, young people decided that they were going to turn nothing into something. That is my origin story. My parents, a subway platform, and the American dream. And they did it, y'all. I am here to tell you they did it. They worked their asses off and they got there. My sister and I, we grew up with a pretty great life. You know, better than what my parents had. I knew that this was going to work out. And I knew that I can get to where I want. Meet my pops, William Rivas. He says that night on the subway platform with my mom, he thought to himself, this woman, she's like me. If this person wants to go where she wants to go, as equal as I, we can achieve anything that we want, especially in America, because America is the land of opportunity. And if you're hungry, you can get it. They were hungry, y'all. And this drive to work hard was not all my parents had in common. Not only is she Latin and she has the flavor, but she can also, she knows everything. This woman, my mom, she knows how to crack a joke. She gives the best hugs. She studied medicine, and she knows how to throw down and dance with the best of them. She followed well, and we were, like, in tune with each other. I was born dancing. Wow. <laughs> this is my mom, Martha Rivas. Whether it meant, uh, you know, freestyle or, or dancing salsa or merengue, you just, you, I don't know, I just picked it up. My parents are kids of the disco era. Watching them dance is like being taken to another time and another place. Saturday Night Fever, except uh, starring two brown people. My father floats and my mom levitates. They both shine. They've been dancing together through life since the moment they met in the 1980s at a high-end clothing store called Clappers. Yeah, I know, it sounds like the name of a strip club, but it was actually a very legit men's clothing store. A nice one, too. It was on 82nd Street in Jackson Heights, Queens. My parents both worked there. That's where they met. And that's where they fell in love. And they kept working. When I was growing up, 
My mom managed an obstetrician's office by day and ran a desk at the ER at night. She worked so hard, I feel like I barely saw her. And my pops, well, I already told you my pops was the superintendent of our building in Queens. To hear him tell it, the job had its perks. Like these old Russian guys who lived in the building, they'd see my dad every morning and insist that he join them for breakfast. Hot salami, hot coleslaw, uh, everything was hot. But you had to have your vodka. And the vodka was like straight up neat. And God forbid you said no. Because these people would say, no, you must, you must. And then they would click you on you know, your neck. And that means you want to have a drink. By the time it was nine o'clock, I already had a little buzz going on. Russians, Jews, Chinese folks, Dominicans, Colombians, you name it. Our building was the melting pot. My family of four squeezed into a tiny one-bedroom apartment for years. Until eventually, we graduated into a two-bedroom. Which means my sister finally got her own room. But not me. But it was alright, though. Because I had the whole building. I think it was... I don't know. We couldn't have asked for a better place to raise our family. It's, um... Tears. It's, Are you crying already? It's... Would you, <laughs> We just started. Oh, gosh, I know. We've only just begun. But memory lane opens floodgates sometimes. Um, So it it was ideal because, I mean, we had everything. We we didn't have an actual house, but the entire building was our house. That's kind of how I saw it. With extended family. I mean, the characters that lived in that building. It was a real neighborhood. It was a building that was a neighborhood. Can you tell me about some of the characters in the building you remember? (laughs) <laughs> so many, right? Rhonda was a sexual therapist mm-hmm. who I thought never had sex. <laughs> Our next door neighbor uh, was um, a tarot card uh, reader. She was great. <laughs> uh, the Goldbergs, the Goldbergs. Mm-hmm. Nice. They were The Goldbergs were in front of us. Upstairs was my godfather, the pastry chef, my best friend, Danny. And on the first floor was Mrs. Butts. Yep. B-U-T-T-S. Mrs. Butt. Mrs. Butt basically was losing her hearing. Fantastic. I think when he says fantastic, I think he means she was fantastic, not that she was losing her hearing. Anyway, Mrs. Butts always had her TV on, blasting. So I would go walk in there and I'd say, can you lower it? And she goes, what? And I would say, Mrs. Butt. And I'd start screaming and she'd go, why are you yelling? And I'm like, but you don't hear me. <laughs> My pops loves to tell stories like these. But the thing that sticks with me the most, my violin moment, is the memory I have of watching my dad interact with all the different folks in our building, changing in front of my eyes for these people. As he calls it, adapting. I'm not sure if it's a natural thing that happens to me or what I do, but I try to make them feel comfortable. First, you know where they come from, who they are, their culture, their habits. And also you have to know everyone and you kind of like study everyone to know how to address them. We're not all the same and we have to adapt to who they are. I tried to adapt to their personalities and who they were to make it easier. Here's some examples of what we're talking about. When my dad would greet the Russian guys in the morning. That's how Nipani But if he was talking to Jose, the Dominican dude who worked for him. Oh, pero flaco, como tu And the kids hanging around on the property late at night, they met this version of my pops. 
Well, let me just tell you, if you don't get out, I'll rip your freaking heart out. Okay, so get the hell out right now before I go crazy on you. And his white bosses met this one. Yes, sir. Yes, (laughs) ma'am. How are you, ma'am? And my pops taught me to do this, too. To study people. To copy them. To adapt. He turned it into a kind of game. Hey, Abigail, can I get some park noise going? Yeah, that's the stuff. I learned the game one evening in Central Park. It's called, Where Are They Going? Where Are They Coming From? And Why Do They Walk That Way? Basically, the premise is simple. You sit at the entrance of a park, or any place really, and you just watch people. You study them. The thing about people and the way they walk, before they even open their mouth, you could see a, a character for who they are by their, their expressions of their, their body. They just got out of work, I know that. Um, and they're going to, they're going home. If they're too edgy, if they're looking around too much, this guy's got something to hide. Why is he looking around? Why is he like, you know, what's happening? Why do they walk that way? He has quite a turnout. Uh, she does not have a turnout. She has more pep in her step. He's so exhausted, I can tell. If they're um, really not paying attention and just walking and oblivious to what's going on with their surrounding. And you got to be careful when you play because you usually don't play it out loud like this because then, you know, people are like staring at you. And my pops thought that if you watch anyone long enough, you get to know how they live, how they move, how they breathe, why they are or aren't successful. He would tell me things like, Chris, you want to be rich? Hang out with rich people. You want to be smart? Hang out with smart people. You want to be funny? Hang out with funny people. Whatever you want to be, mijo, you put yourself there until it comes true. Play the part. Play the part. In today's society, we call this code switching now. Do you know that term? Uh, no, but it, I must say that it's similar to adapting to the culture. Playing the part. Code switching. Adapting to the culture. It's all the same. It's all pretending. And it got my dad ahead in life. It got him and me and many brown people the American dream. But whose dream is it really? And what does it cost us? The roar produced by the shots of the rifles were the first noises I heard in my life. I was at most three years old. That is Ruby's origin story. Porfirio Rubirosa Arisa is born in 1909 in a Dominican town called San Francisco de Marcoris. He is the youngest child of an upper-middle-class family. His father is in the military, and the country he's born into is one in chaos. Bands of men fighting for power and control. Suddenly, trembling from the detonations, the glass in the windows shattered. People shouted. My mother took me and threw me under the bed. I could hear her breathless voice pleading softly to the Virgen de la Altagracia. When Ruby is just six years old, he's extracted from the chaos. His father is sent on a diplomatic mission to Paris. All of a sudden, Ruby is far from the DR, a young brown boy in a gold, glittering city. I think 
what separates him from the typical Dominican man is his uh, raising in 20s and 30s Paris. And we can only imagine what that was like. And that's where the Ruberosa that we know was really reborn. This is Marty Wall, co-author of Chasing Ruby. What changes for him in Paris? Oh, where did you grow up, sir? New York City. New York City. Well, that's you're the wrong person to ask. <laughs> what up, Paris? NYC represent. I grew up in, in Detroit, and I remember my first visit to New York, which is I had no idea there was even a place like this. You know, and I think, you know, a young boy, I think he moved there, seeing the other side of life, you know, there were cars, there were motor cars, there were lights everywhere, you know. So I think it was just a huge eye opener for a different lifestyle and one that he was born to be part of. Ruby loves living in a cosmopolitan place like Paris. He learns French, and when his older siblings are sent to Spain for high school, he gets to stay. His father enrolls him in a fancy private school, giving Ruby an education he could have never have had in the Dominican Republic. An education not just in history or art, but in the ways of the European world. Homeboy got to watch people walk in the parks of Paris. He got to learn how to walk like them. And it was the 20s in Paris. It was the high life. You know, he, he became equated with the high life. Just this amazing, magical place that he learned how to become the mayor of eventually. Ruby, the mayor of Paris. Can you imagine getting to play that part? I mean, this is the 1920s in Paris, y'all. Like the real midnight in Paris. There are clubs and bars and art and music and dancing. Ruby's only in his early teens, but he aches to go to the clubs, to be in the mix. And then he remembers the lesson from his teacher with the violin. Fait semblant. Just pretend. And so that's what he does. In 1925, Ruby is only 16, but he sneaks his way into a nightclub. His first nightclub. I can see it as vividly as it were yesterday. The smell of perfume, cigarette smoke, and aftershade filled the air. I chose a beautiful woman that was seated with her date to dance with me. She ran her fingers through my hair as we danced close and pressed our cheeks together. Before I knew it, it was daylight, 7 a.m. I had forgotten that I was still a child dependent upon my parents. A grown woman spends the night dancing with a teen? Really? No way. But Ruby's memoir is filled with stories about underage drinking and jazz and women and staying out all night. Pretty soon, the nightlife takes a toll on his schoolwork. He seems almost pleased about it in his memoir. I only opened the books that I liked, and these were few in number. The only geography that interested me was the geography of Paris by night. In 1928, 
Ruby's father was back in the Dominican Republic when he received word that his son had failing grades for the third time. Ruby's father sends him a furious telegram. Head to the coast. You're getting on a boat back to the Dominican Republic. Now. I had returned from Paris. The liberated son from the liberated city parading all the prestige that conferred. It seemed everyone was envious of my emancipated behavior. It turns out, nothing really phases Ruby. Coming home to the DR isn't such a big deal for him. Even though his father winds up getting sick and there's political turmoil all around him, Ruby still writes about music, dancing, and girls. Although, he does seem disappointed in the old-fashioned dating etiquette of the DR. The culture in Santo Domingo, compared to that of Paris, was like stepping back in time. You couldn't just ask a girl out to the movies and be alone with her. If a young man liked a girl, he had to first ask her parents' permission in a eloquent manner. A simple yes or no was out of the question. It was more like the third degree. Ruby spends his afternoons on the beach with his friends, flirting with girls, smoking hand-rolled cigarettes. But while Ruby's life is a breeze, his country is weathering a storm. A storm brought on by one man in particular, Rafael Trujillo, the dictator who ruled the DR for 30 years. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun, and that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Ruby was born into an era of Dominican history filled with continuous conflict. After the DR declared its independence in 1844, there was this constant cycle of leaders seizing power and then being assassinated and then seizing power and then assassinated and so on. In 1930, just two years after Ruby's return to the DR, there is a new leader, one that will shape Ruby's life and the course of world events. Enter our next great pretender, Generalissimo Rafael Trujillo. Oh, Trujillo. Ah, must I? This is Chasing Ruby co-author Isabella Wall. We're not going to talk to her for long in this episode, but I just had to let you hear her reaction to Trujillo. That sigh, that sigh says it all. You know, yeah, I mean, he's just, uh, it's something, let's just say. Trujillo, it's the, the dictator of the Dominican Republic who um, dominated the island for about 32 years or something like that. Trujillo would come to be known as one of the deadliest dictators in the Americas. He seized power of the Dominican Republic in a coup against the sitting president in 1930, and then he ruled with a bloody iron fist for three decades, under the guise of restoring order to a country ravaged by conflict. 
Ruby is always writing about Trujillo, and he seems particularly impressed by their first encounter. It was in the fall of 1932, at the country club, that I met Trujillo for the first time. I did not know more about him than what my father had told me a few weeks before he died and what was whispered in the halls of high society where fear has settled. The general was a tigre, a tiger, more cruel than the others, more cunning than a fox. Ruby was just 22 when he met Trujillo. At the time, Trujillo was a feared man who would only get more violent as time went along. But Ruby doesn't seem afraid in his memoir. He seems enamored by the general's self-control and his appetite for pleasure. Well, um, Trujillo was, you know, he was the master of manipulation. This is Milagros Ricor. She's a professor of Latin American studies at Lehman College. Milagros says that as Trujillo rose to power in the DR, he had a way of getting what he wanted, both personally and politically. So Trujillo entered the police academy that the United States created in the Dominican Republic after the invasion, the 1916 invasion. So he he entered that academy, and from the academy, he graduated as a colonel. Then he went to the capital city, he ousted Horacio Vasquez, and he became the president with an election that was fraudulent. Yeah. This guy took over and then held an election in which he conveniently won 99% of the vote. That's pretending to the max, y'all. Once in power, Trujillo renamed the capital city after, you guessed it, himself. He demanded every home hang a sign pledging allegiance to God and to him. He also kept an execution list. If you oppose Trujillo's political positions, you are on the list. Speak out, on the list. Make eye contact for too long, you'd probably wind up on the list. Trujillo once allowed an opposition party to form, only to then arrest and kill everyone who joined the opposition. In order to keep a steadfast hold on the country, Trujillo surrounded himself with loyalists, and he very much wanted to be accepted by the elite, which, believe it or not, Included our boy Ruby. He went to great lengths to meet me and others like me. He portrayed himself as a descendant of a Spanish soldier and a French marquise, which, of course, he wasn't. Those in high society ridiculed Trujillo because of his low social origins, and he was well aware of that. Let's take a second here. That pretending is back. Trujillo is pretending he's Spanish, French, European, basically. He's pretending he's white. Even though, like almost everyone in the DR, Trujillo was the descendant of enslaved Africans. He had Haitian relatives, y'all. He was anything but white. The man is Afro-Latino, black with a capital B. But Trujillo didn't want that to be true. Trujillo didn't want to be black, so he pretended. He actually went so far as to use makeup. He baby-powdered his face multiple times a day to lighten his complexion. He applied a literal mask to hide who he really was. This was racial, of course, but it was also about power. About aligning himself with those he so desperately wanted to impress, the elite. 
the European and American rulers, the white faces of power. Trujillo loved Rubirosa. Um, there was a, you know, like a, a, a chemistry between the two because uh, Rubirosa had everything that he believed the perfect man had to have. Rubirosa was all the things that Trujillo wasn't. Ruby embodies so much of what Trujillo desperately wants to be. He's got the European upbringing and education. He speaks French, and he's at home in Paris. He's stylish, he's cool, he's a ladies' man, and he has sway with the young people of the island. Trujillo offers Ruby a job in the military, hoping Ruby's acceptance will cast a shiny glow on his army. I always felt the president was using me as a trophy of sorts. He would always have me around to charm the wives of visiting diplomats and dignitaries with my polo stories and other wild tales I just made up. Was Ruby scared to be working for Trujillo, a man quick to punish even the slightest transgression? From his memoir, it doesn't sound like it. But then again, let's not forget, Ruby is also pretty good at pretending. Once he's in Trujillo's military... Ruby still finds ways to be Ruby. Just like he did in Paris, Ruby spends most of his time doing the things he wants to do. Trujillo's protection gave me great leeway, allowed me to see the good side of military life, and to be active in sports, which I loved, especially riding horses. Ruby also proudly writes about ways he tested the limits of being Trujillo's trophy boy. Get this. One night, he's invited to a fancy dinner Trujillo is hosting. He's supposed to wear his formal military whites, but he shows up in his casual khakis. My formals are in the wash, he says, lying to everyone in the room and everyone knowing it's a lie. I still remember the look Trujillo gave me. And the eyebrows that rose in the middle of his forehead. How will Trujillo react to such blatant insubordination? This is the exact sort of thing that gets someone fired, expelled. And then Ruby, being Ruby, takes it one step further and abandons his position. He brags about it in his memoir. I couldn't take it anymore. The musicians were playing a dance. I left my ridiculous guard post, walked around the presidential table, and with the feeling of a gaze of steel on my back, I approached a young lady, leaned over, and invited her to sit with me at a small table near the president. The dictator watches, but doesn't intervene. And this is the moment Ruby and Trujillo begin their long, long tango. A dance that will last for 30 years. Ruby gains money, power, and prestige. Trujillo gains a posh and elegant Dominican mouthpiece. A man everybody loves on his side. A few months after the uniform incident... Trujillo and Ruby take another dangerous spin. Trujillo introduces Ruby to his daughter, a beautiful young woman named Flor de Oro, 
which means flower of gold. It wasn't supposed to mean anything, but before you know it, Ruby and Flor are sneaking around behind Trujillo's back, in love. And this took guts, y'all. I mean, asking a woman to dance in the wrong color uniform is pretty bold, right? But now this dude is literally sneaking around with Trujillo's own daughter. Even when you know that he lived another 30 years, when you were turning the pages in his biography, you're half expecting Ruby's gonna end up on that execution list any minute now. And so when the dictator finds out about Ruby and Flor's little love affair, he's filled with rage and kicks Ruby out of the military. Fearing for his life, Ruby runs away to his family's cocoa plantation. While he's in hiding, Flor calls him there. My love, don't give up. Were the first words from her lips, everything will work out. You'll see. I have not left my room, but I have sent word to my father that I wanted to marry you. She'd beaten him. She got what she wanted, always. And I was what she wanted. Ruby and Flor persist. And eventually, Trujillo gives up. They get married in December of 1932. Trujillo declares their wedding day a national holiday. Flor is just 17. Ruby is 23. And now he's the son-in-law of one of the most dangerous men in the world. Was Ruby really in love with Flor? Or did the brave young ladies' man get in over his head? Maybe marriage was the only option to save his life. But one thing is clear. After Ruby marries Flor... He certainly loves the privilege of being Trujillo's son-in-law. He'll soon be appointed diplomat, traveling the world in style, with a generous spending account and a beautiful woman at his side. And it's here that I can't help but remember that scene with the violin. A schoolboy realizes that if he pretends with enough confidence, he can stay on stage in the middle of the action. Now that same boy is standing in the middle of a much more dangerous stage, and he's playing to please a brutal dictator. While you might admire his guts, you can't help but feel he's risking losing something in this game. Remember that subway story I told you at the top of this episode? About how hard my parents worked to give me and my sister a life different from their own? Let's go back to that for a minute. I think that family history has some more lessons about what pretending can really cost us. When I was 13, and out of nowhere, in the middle of this, like, big merengue, salsa, Dominican bachata, me and all my 37 cousins, shindig party in Queens, my pops' cousin calls my dad fake. Fake. And this shouting match it just begins and then the cousin yells yo look who it is the blanquitos as in look who it is the white people followed up with when are you gonna stop trying to be so white my dad was furious him and his family they barely speak And that's not the only time in my dad's life that people confronted him like this. Well, my friends used to say, you want to be something that you're not. Then they would say, oh, check out Willie. He's trying to be part of a, you know, they would say, oh, you want to be white now? So you would hear that. Uh, In my behalf, I just wanted to fit in. 
and be respected in some way. I didn't care what people thought about, you know, when they, they said if I had to adapt. It's not about adapting. I just want to get somewhere. And I know that it was in my time and still now, you know, you want to, in order to be with a certain uh, certain group of class, you had to fit in. You had to be, you had to knew current events. You had to knew what was going on. People judge you. And honestly, money brings money. Uh, connections bring connections. It's who you know. It's not what you know. My dad pretends when he adapts and puts on his mask. I think in his mind, he's doing it for us, his family, so that we can have the life he and my mom talked about on that subway all those years ago. But maybe to other people, my pops is selling out. He's pandering to the people with the powers that can grant him that money, those connections, that so-called freedom and American dream. And you know what? My dad's not wrong. In America, if you look like us, if you come from a culture like us, that's what it takes. Assimilation. Pretending. Faking it till you make it. But there are costs. Do you think you and mom gave anything up in order to achieve this American dream? Friendship. My, your mother didn't, but I did. I, uh, I couldn't relate to my friends still hanging out. I want something new. I want to be progress. I want somebody who's going in the same direction I'm going. Because if you're not, and you're going to stay without me, I still will say hello to you. But we didn't. Sometimes I just couldn't go back. How do you identify? White, brown, what? How do I see myself? I see myself as a white person. I see myself as William Rivas, born in New York City and raised as a Latin American, my American culture. That's it. I mean, one story is my real name is Guillermo in my social security. So when I was going to school, people would laugh because when they would do roll call, uh, the teacher couldn't pronounce Guillermo and they would say Guillermo and they would have a hard time. And then you get the kids that were laughing. So to me, I was growing up with this embarrassment about my name and it was hard. I made it an effort as a teenager to go to social security office and change my name to William. And one time my dad says he had a party. I invited some of my regular friends and one of the neighbors said to one of my friends, hey, how do you know Bill? He goes, Bill, who's Bill? <laughs> and he said, the owner of this house. Oh, you're talking about Willie? Oh, I know Willie for a long time. So <laughs> I had to blend in with different types in order to, you know, just mix in there, be part of that pot. Okay. So I knew my dad's real name was Guillermo. And I know everyone calls him William or Willie or Mr. Bill. But I didn't know he changed it legally until this conversation. I definitely didn't know he marked his license white until this conversation. My mom didn't either. Though she said it didn't surprise her. When I hear stuff like this, I feel angry. Mad at my dad for not standing by his birth name or for not punching his cousins or his buddies for talking shit or for marking white on his driver's license. But I can't stay mad for long, because in every conversation we have like this, even for this podcast, he always asks me this one question. 
Did I do a good job, Chris? Oh yeah, for sure. Of course. Uh, okay. Yeah, I think I think you and mom did an amazing job. I think look at the life. I I mean, I think I ask you these questions not in a way of saying you did a bad job, but like look at the ability for me to be able to ask you these questions, for us to have these conversations, and I think that's in large part to you two just saying yes um, more than you said no uh, and supporting me no matter what. Yeah. I know I told you the skies are the limits and I think I did a great job because I see what I've, what I've created. In the end, my pops is right. He did a damn good job. He made sacrifices, and they were worth something. Growing up with him as my dad taught me valuable lessons about how to survive in a world not made for us. Surviving as a brown body in this world does take a little bit of code switching. A little assimilation, a little pretending, sometimes a lot. And I gotta hold both these feelings at once. The push against pretending and trying for the white gaze and the realization that it helps me play the game. It helps me thrive, not just survive. You know, scientists have studied the physiological cost of competing for acceptance from the white gaze. I feel these costs daily. A steady anxiety that I feel in my gut and in my heart. A steady feeling that I might not be enough. I think most brown people feel this at some point in their life. I think my pops has had this anxiety. I think Ruby had it too. The need to be accepted. Even Trujillo, the guy who seized power, kept powdering his face because he wanted to be accepted by the white gaze that surrounded his little island in the Caribbean. Because we don't have the luxury of walking into the world without some sort of perfect mask. So we walk the tightrope of pretending. Pretending in order to fit in. Pretending in order to be seen. Next time, we'll take a look at Ruby's life, from his adventures in the high life. He was incredibly glamorous. I was always flirting with women, gave fantastic parties, and he seduced everybody. To his low points. Basically, Ruby Rosa was assigned with, you know, making him disappear. And we'll find out what Ruby might have in common with Bond. James Bond. Ruby Rosa is a production of Witness Docs from Stitcher. It's created by me, Christopher Rivas, and I'm also an executive producer. Abigail Keel is our senior producer. Kevin Tidbarsh is our producer and the man in the booth. Our story editor is John Delore. Our technical director is Casey Holford. Camille Stanley is the executive producer of Witness Docs. Readings of Ruby's memoir are performed by Victor Almansar. Thanks, Victor. Workhouse Media Inc. is also a contributing producer to this podcast, as are executive producers Amelia Baker, Mackenzie Monroe, and Ari Anderson. Thanks, y'all. 
Original music for this podcast is composed and performed by Wilson Torres, the man on the drums, Jason Vilamar, and Marcos Varela. Our theme song is composed by Allison Leighton Brown. We want to hear from you. So send your questions, your thoughts, and stories to rubirosa at stitcher.com. And if you're enjoying this podcast, tell a friend about it. Subscribe, write a review, do all those things to help get the word out. You know what they are, and we really appreciate it. Peace, y'all. Much love. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com.